0: Trump loyalist Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's voiced support
1: for executing Nancy Pelosi. Is she fit to serve and should she be on the education committee? Uh, I don't think we ought to punish people uh, from a disciplinary standpoint, a party standpoint, because uh, they think something a little bit different. Republicans let themselves be hijacked by Trump and now Trump is gone and no one has stepped
0: in. Right. So we have a situation where the Republican Party is largely governed by whoever's the loudest. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the McCrake podcast. I'm Jared Yates Sexton. As always, I am joined by the one and the only Nick Houseman. Uh We have a special guest today. Uh, we're going to speak with veteran uh, journalist and the author of Volunteers Growing Up in the Forever War, Jared Alexander, about you know, the effects on culture and countries when you have wars for longer than a generation, what it does to people and how you end up with, um, I don't know, radicalized people all rushing the capital and joining militias and other radicalized groups. So that'll be in a little bit. But before we get there, Nick, we have to have a conversation uh, about what's going on right now. There, It, it feels a little bit like, there's some movement in terms of, of COVID relief packages. Like, maybe we're starting to figure out, I don't know, how to vaccinate people. But in the meantime, there is a continued sort of malevolent, underpinning, bad feeling to our political ecosystem. Uh, we have the right, which is continuing to march off its fascistic cliff. God knows what Donald Trump is up to. Uh, we we have a bleeding conservative right-wing media apparatus in Fox News that is just hemorrhaging viewers at this point, which tells me, and I assume it tells you as well, that they're going to have to go further right and embrace people like uh, our good friend Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, beliefs of Jewish space lasers. So I all got one for our
2: bat mitzvahs. mitzvahs. I I, I assume it's wonderful,
0: but I assume that this is uh, that you're, you're concerned about this as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, here's the thing um, that I think I'm most interested in. And I wanted to hear your take on it was the fact that, you know, Fox News, their, their ratings are going down. Right. It's, it's crazy that oh, we, we kind of predict this, predict, predicted this, but the idea that their ratings would go down so much, they're third you know, in the major demographics in some of these um, uh, these ratings. And I, I'm not sure what to make of that. That's not great. That's not great. Um,
0: I'm I'm not a I'm not a TV executive and or a quote unquote math wizard, but when there are three major cable news networks, um, I don't think it's great when you're third.
2: No, three is not good. Screw second too. To quote uh, Burt Reynolds. <laughs> oh, I thought we
0: were quoting Ricky Bobby. Um, oh, no, that too. Yeah, I I think that we are watching. A pretty predictable thing. We were talking about this uh, in the in the waning days of the Trump presidency, how Fox News, had created uh, or helped create the Tea Party and the rightward movement of, uh, of the American reactionary right. And that there was a bill coming due, particularly as they had to do things like announce that Joe Biden had won states in the presidential election and that that was going to sever reality to them and open up their flank for OANN and Newsmax. We are now watching that come to the fore. We're watching Trump has turned the channel off. And you know, download Newsmax and OANN. Meanwhile, uh, their golden god emperor Donald Trump nowhere to be found at all, it's completely silent. Not just because he lost his Twitter account, not phoning into Hannity, not phoning into Tucker, uh, Judge Janine, <laughs> right? Like he's not, Maria, uh, Maria. He's not phoning into these places. It seems like he's already told everybody, "Screw off! I'm going to go enjoy post." president retirement or whatever it is but the whole thing feels very very bad and there is no way whatsoever that fox is going to react to this by coming back like having a uh, you know a, a coming to jesus moment they're not going to grow a conscience like this just tells me that they, they they only have one choice which is to move to the right i mean
2: it's that what's the phrase uh it's it's quiet too quiet a little too quiet yeah And uh, so that's what I'm feeling right now. There's something out there. Now, there's a lot of things swirling around Trump, which would maybe indicate why he's so he is so quiet. Uh, I suppose he's wringing his hands, his small hands, uh, over the, um, the the impending uh, legal issues he's going to have. I'm, I'm kind of waiting. I, it, it sounded like they were. everyone was waiting for him to get out of the White House to start unleashing all these lawsuits and making them public because he's not protected by the White House anymore. So I'm kind of waiting for that. Um, did you happen to see the delightful letter that was written uh, by the lawyers uh, representing the Lincoln Project uh, to one Rudy Giuliani? I, I did. Uh, I think the uh, you know, and
0: again, I'm going to put on my political pundit hat, which looks a lot like a like a hunting derby. That's that's my political pundit hat. Um, it was a mixed weekend for the Lincoln Project. On one oh, hand, yeah. they sent out a uh, a scathing firebomb of an email to Rudy Giuliani, basically saying, "Take our name out of your mouth." And then, on the other hand, one of their co-founders was found out to be a malicious Pervert. So I think it was a, I think it was a rough little weekend for them. But that's sort of the, the area that they traffic in, you know, it's a little wobbly a little bit, that train's always about to come off the tracks. So I do think that Trump is worried about this impeachment trial. On top of that, he just loves being in the news. You know what I mean? Like he—he's ready for his moment. He's ready to come back and just suddenly be in the center of conversation because that's who he is. It is still odd that he's not calling into Hannity and Judge Janine and all of these people. Like it's an odd choice that he has made. But we do have to focus for a second. I don't know. Did you see this clip off Newsmax talking about the Second Civil War? Did you not see this? No. No. What oh my God, Nick. That one of their guys I, – I don't even know who they are. They all look alike. They feel like – um, I, this happened after our childhoods. There's like all of a sudden they had these uh, Play-Doh factories where it was like you could create little molded Play-Doh men. Like you you pushed a little guy and all of a sudden it popped out and they all looked alike. <laughs> That's what Newsmax and OAN did. They're pumping out the same white dudes who are all kind of aggressive mm-hmm. and also paranoid and coming down a conveyor belt. Okay. One of the guys – Said, I don't know why the Democrats want to push us to a civil war, but I think that they have intentionally made their followers irrationally afraid of weapons so that they'll be slaughtered to help China. Now, <laughs> wow! I, like, like, really? I want you to do the math on that thing. Like, there is, there's a lot. You got to carry a couple of ones in this to square that circle. But I think it's important to point out, if you're Fox News. You have to figure out a way to get to that. Do you know what I mean? Like you – like right now they're just pushing New World Order conspiracy theories without saying New World Order. They're talking about stolen elections, crime families, conspiracies. They have to figure out a way to get to that. They have to move to that direction, right? Because you
2: know what they did was, you ever like, you know, it's spring is coming up, right? And and in spring you kind of go through all your stuff. You do some cleaning. You get some things out of the uh, out of the attic, maybe. You open up. Oh, remember this, honey? This this old photo album. We well, this is what they've done. You know, they're talking about Guantanamo now. Yes. And yes. they're talking about yes. how – and they're trying to blame as if Trump hadn't been in power for the last four yes. years. And they're yes. blaming how that's going. I mean they, that is some serious dusting off of the hits here. They're which playing is they're, off the you know, greatest hits. Yeah. They're playing the greatest hits.
0: And they, they – they, and that's enough to like – you can every now and then you can release the, your greatest hits
2: album and that will sell a few copies. Yeah, Billy Joel is awesome live in concert.
0: I saw Billy Joel, too. He was was great.
2: Like he could go for three hours without playing a –
0: But then you somehow or another have to figure out how to compete with your contemporaries, right? And, And what has happened is actually what began happening back in 2010, which is when the Tea Party started showing up, Fox News and the Republican Party had to be like, oh, this is new. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. this is the next evolution of all this conspiracy race mongering that we've done for so long. We have to catch up or like the Neanderthals, we're done, right? They have to look at this now and figure out who they are in a post-Trump world, which is something closer to that, which is the Democrats want their own supporters to be slaughtered to help China. Like they have to figure out their own birth. I, I know it makes me... Dizzy, almost.
2: Well, this is there's parallels here because they kind of created this themselves. You know, the first oh, yeah. iteration yep. was the uh, Clinton impeachment when they launched, and then they developed this, you know, almost yep. overnight, this incredible following. And then, you know, part two was 2010, the reawakening. Yep. Um, and here is now this is the part three but they, they've created a lot of this is on their own oh, like, the, like the Frankenstein's monster which is sort of like what the Republican party itself has done if you think about it yep. they created the, the the mindset and then the recoil in a horror when they realize what happens when you do that when yep. you you know when I, I think we're, we're gonna go decades in, until we fully understand or, or can appreciate or whatever the word is uh, just how serious this was uh, this stop this deal and what that did yep. to the country, what it did to our elections. And it's not just going to be like, oh, well, it was a, a, an attempted coup and a storming of a capital. This is a movement that they're going to we're going to have to have a lot of time to try and, and combat against. Uh, and we're going to find out just the ramifications. So it's like both these parties, I mean, what, what will we what can we argue? What can we accuse the Democratic Party of doing that does this? I can't even think. I mean, people just want to be too safe in their spaces on campuses and be less of assholes? Is yes. that like what their legacy is? I think so.
0: The closest thing is what people like Barry Weiss or um, – um, oh, who's the one with Snowden? Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald, right? Uh, these people and, uh, Yasha Monk, I think does this too, which is like, it's like, oh, campus safe spaces. Pretty soon if you say a slur or say that you're a woman or a man, they're going to pull out the guillotine or whatever. Like they truly, honestly have tried to make a brand off of that. And, you know, you, you actually look now. And we talked about this not too long ago. It's like this new iteration. You have your Marjorie Taylor Green. You've got your Boebert. You've got your Cawthorn. You've even got Dan Crenshaw, who, by the way, we talked about his Avengers wannabe video of attacking, uh, you know, Antifa. And like now, he's like, let's let's get to some civility, people. And it's like, oh, all right, Dan. All right, Dan. Thank you. You've had your chance. Won't you sit down? The whole point is right now, Taylor Green. Bobert Cawthorn they're not on Fox News right now. You know what I mean? Like they're not they're they they're 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 kept away from it a little bit. When they start going on there. And and what are the stories that Taylor Green says? Taylor Green says that, you know, the quote-unquote deep state and the cabals are carrying off these big giant like false flag operations. They're killing people, they're trying to take your freedom. Bobert is telling a story, which by the way, all this is stories. All of these are stories, and how, how many people can you convince to believe your story? Boebert is telling a story which is, I have to carry a gun into Congress, and guess what? I'm willing to do it, and somebody needs to fight these people, and guess who will? This gal. I mean, that's what that's literally the story she's telling. Fox News is going to go with them. They have to. They have to bring them on because they need new stars, they need the breath into this stuff bringing Carl Roven isn't going to help anybody. Those old retreads, like you were saying that's Mach two mm-hmm. right that's not even like three like we you're exactly right. We're on like version three of Fox well, and mm-hmm. now it has to figure out what it is.
2: well several weeks ago they started experimenting with integrating because you know remember what I've said when I watched Fox News in those you know deep dives for days at a time the daytime before the freaks come out at night uh, is actually <laughs> normal news right like it, it, it sounds somewhat reasonable for the most part like you know they could pass yeah uh, but they've been injecting these yep. Tucker Carlson and um, um, the hair guy uh, my goodness uh, Hannity's uh, Hannity? Hannity's little you know little little couple minute inserts inserts into these uh, the regular news and then they have to react to this so you can see what they're already trying to do and now they, they and they put kill me when they did that yeah.
0: before. Do you know when they did that before? Um, No, but it's no. Tell me. 2009, 2010 with a fella. Let me check my notes here, Nick. Let me check my notes here. Um, Glenn Beck? Glenn Beck? Did he have anything to do with the Tea Party? A a little bit. A little bit? Did he inspire the Tea Party to believe in conspiracy theories and he became one of the singular stars of it? Yeah. He did. Yeah, that's what they had to do with him. They would bring him on in order to spike the day ratings and he'd go on these shows that would report the news and all of a sudden Glenn Beck would be there talking about Van Jones and Acorn and like plans to replace white people.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah And then they're throwing Kill Me out there In this new morning show They're trying uh, And that's been Tanking as well So I, I, could, I get it Because remember This is all about ratings This is not about ideology at all, You know no. In any um, uh, Here's the thing It's a, it's it's about ideology To the viewers <laughs> yes. But not at all About for, for the producers And the, the people in, At Fox themselves So uh, there's no question That they have no issue They won't have any issue Going crazy the only thing is Will these Will the hosts Have any problems with it And I, I it doesn't sound Like they were I mean I mean, Maria Bartiromo, at, at some point in her career, was like respected, right? Yep. She was like the money lady, right? People like liked her. She seemed reasonable, um, and it, she is so far off the deep end. But you know what? The, the reason why she did this was because of money, right? She she gets higher yeah. ratings uh, and more money from Fox. I, like it's almost like if you are a money person and, and you're looking at, well, how can I make more money? I want another house or whatever. This is how you do it. And there's no there's no moral, uh, you know. Uh, argument in your in your psyche about whether this is good or bad
0: and by the way uh patient x for that is none other than the fish stick air tucker carlson he was on nbc Tucker carlson has been yeah he has been fired from literally everywhere like this (laughs) is this is i want to say his fourth or his fifth gig because he gets fired constantly because he has like the worst face and he's a smarmy ass you know And eventually what ends up happening is he ends up on Fox and he has an incredible instinct right now of what these people want, which is they want Trumpian white identity, faux populism fed to them over and over again. And if you actually watch, uh, Tucker's ratings are good. They still are really, really good. His show right now is the vanguard. It's it's the protector of Trumpism at the moment. And if you actually watch that show, it is nonstop – perceived aggrievement and perceived persecution and conspiracy theories, white supremacy, and Tucker Carlson is going to get pushed to the moon and he's going to bring Fox News right along with him. And I mean like that's that's where this thing is heading. And, and I, I want to say on one hand, I'm so glad that Trump isn't on Twitter. I'm so glad that Trump isn't on Facebook. I'm so glad he's not pumping toxin into the body at large. But for me, and I don't know how you feel about it, Nick, going back to the idea that it's a little too quiet, it makes me incredibly uncomfortable and anxious knowing that there is stuff out there that is going on, conversations that are happening. And that report in the New York Times, if people haven't checked it out, they should about the days between the election and the coup. Uh, Like if you go back and look at it, like there are a lot of people around Trump who are trying to make illiberal democracy a thing. They're trying to destroy our political system in totality writ large. The fact that this is happening somewhere out here where I can't see it and I can't watch it makes me really uncomfortable.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's funny because you are talking about this of the other that we don't know about out there in the, uh, in the ether. Well, you know, there's like eight hours of video of Marjorie Taylor Greene that really I'm not sure has yep. been released. Uh, There's more of that that's going to come out, too, which is even crazier because she's it's like the list is 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 as is the craziest of Q conspiracies. Uh, And and let's not to tie that with Trump. I mean, Trump completely backed her, uh, as did Meadows and um, Jim Jordan. So, like, she was in an early – because I, I kind of studied that this weekend, too. There was a guy that came out and ran against her in the uh, primaries and described, the, you know, how it happened. And, you know, they kind of tried a little bit of releasing these things to battle against her to uh, to try and win. But I think he. I think the guy. It sounded like he just kind of. He kind of was resigned to losing once he realized how much backing she had from Trump and how important Trump is in that area in Georgia. That it wasn't going to matter. It wasn't. Ma- it wasn't it won't matter at all uh, whether he whether he released that stuff or not or found it. I guess at least in the primary.
0: It's um, it's important for us to state because we've been on this story longer than most. It's really important to state that like, just saying. The crazy shit that QAnon people believe, just like looking them in the eye and saying, you really believe in Jewish space lasers? You really believe in moon civilization? Like it, JFK Jr. Is still alive. There is a belief, a misguided belief, particularly on the left, that just telling the person that what they believe is crazy will make it go away. Or just... Trying to wrap your head around how crazy it is will make it go away. People voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene because she believes this shit. <laughs> they support her because she believes this shit. And this is an important thing. I don't know if you saw, but she talked to Trump. She she reached out to Trump while all of this stuff has been swirling around, and Trump said her don't told her don't apologize. Which is, by the way, the best lesson that he can give anybody: mm-hmm. just never apologize ever. And, and she was like, I'm not going to apologize. And he gave her, and we talked about this before. I don't think Trump's going to run in 2024, regardless what happens in the Senate or whatever. But we are watching the sweepstakes about who is going to take over Trumpism and who's going to run with it. She got some daps. She got some points. She got some gold stars. She got some Trump coins, if you will. Trump ducats, whatever we want to call them. Like, this is what a certain segment of the population is looking for
2: right now this is the consequence by the way of a free and open society it produces insanity mass insanity right if you're in if you're in north korea like they tell you what you have to believe and most people are ultimately are forced to do that right we've seen people who escaped right and they talk about it and from when, when you're born they, the way they raise you is you have to believe that Kim, Kim Jong-un is, is a uh, is the supreme leader from God whatever you know That all this ridiculous stuff um, but when you have an open society like this you know it's, it's going to breed this kind of insanity and like in some weird way in our first amendment you know uh Defending You kind of have to Sort of Like that has to be Allowed to exist To some degree I guess I, I mean I don't know How else to the, the And by the way This is what their Big grievance is Is that by calling them Out on the insanity That's silencing them It's the next step It's the next stop Toward fascism yeah. So they want to make A direct connection Between us saying You are lying And creating And destroying democracy To them This is the same thing That that people in, in uh, Or that, that uh, The leadership In North Korea does Or China does To silence or Russia. You know what I mean? It's a very disarming way of arguing, which is completely intellectually dishonest. But it's very hard to get a footing to like come back from that.
0: It's really, really important also on top of that, because you're exactly right that this stuff happens in an open society. But it also happens in an open society that starts to decay, right? Right. Like where there's a massive problem. And we're we're getting ready to talk with Jared Alexander about uh, radicalization and stuff like that. But I just want to point out really, really quickly with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Two things can be true at once. I think she should be expelled from Congress. I 100% believe that the rules of expelling a member of Congress should apply to someone who has pushed for the execution of her colleagues, has talked about overthrowing the United States government, and traffics in dangerous, radicalized conspiracy theories. There are reasons for these rules. But the same thing that is important at that time is, Nick, if she got expelled, she would not consider that to be a bad thing. She would make so much money and gain so much clout and so much power from that happening. Because the right, as a reactionary force, is all about perceived persecution. Who is getting attacked? Who's getting held back? Who's being censored? All of those things, they are desperate for martyrdom. And so both of those things are, are true at the exact same time. But that's something we got to reckon with and we've got to figure out because shared open society is hard. And more on that topic, we're going to have veteran and journalist and author Jared Alexander joining us here in just, uh, just a second. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're here with Jared W. Alexander, who is a writer with works in Esquire, Rolling Stone, The Nation, Narratively, and Elsewhere. He holds an MFA and literary reportage from New York University, Arthur L. Carter School of Journalism. He's the author of the upcoming memoir, Volunteers Growing Up in the Forever War, out in November. Uh, he is a veteran, but I want to point out first and foremost that I have not talked to him in five years The last time I saw Jared, uh, we were hanging out and covering the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio. (laughs) Uh, Three of the weirdest ass days of my life, I have to say. And uh, it was a weird period of watching armed militia groups, uh, extremists, the alt-right. We went to a Milo Yiannopoulos event where (laughs) Richard Spencer was hanging out at the bar. Uh, you turn one corner and Alex Jones would be there. We turned another corner and ran into, uh, uh, Roger Stone. Uh, I, I, have to say, Jared, uh, I'm glad to have you here, but I, I have to say in the time that we haven't talked in the last five years, what we watched in Cleveland, what it's become the weird shit situation that we're in. Uh, could you have imagined this from that time? How, how are you feeling about things?
1: You know, I kind of oscillate back and forth on surprise. I think that like the crowd itself was not surprising, given what we saw in Cleveland in '16. I mean, every like you said, every time you turned a corner, you saw insanity, um, low grade or high grade. But I was a little stunned to see them, uh, you know, storm those barricades and walk themselves into the Capitol. That was a. I was in a. I I think I said this to you before. I was in a Sherman-esque mode after that. I was very much like I. I kind of want to William Sherman the, those kind of ideologies out of the out of, out of the ground, um, but at the same time, there's a part of me that's like, no, this is kind of on brand. This is the local culmination of that. It's not over by any stretch of the imagination, I don't think. But for that act, that was it, it somehow fit. It was a narrative of of theft, you know, stabbed in the back kind of uh, attitudes that persisted throughout the past four years, irrespective of the fact that the man was president. And that was—I think—that was in a certain respect a natural conclusion for that.
2: So, give us a little uh, idea of your background, because I think it's pretty uh, unique in terms of someone who's from a, from a journalist now, um, and what your connection is to the Forever Wars.
1: Well, I grew up around the military. My um, my mother, stepfather, father, and just about all my grandfathers, including my stepfather's parents, were all military, predominantly Air Force. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side was in the army, um, and so I, I just kind of grew up around it. Uh, the Gulf War was a huge, like uh, it was a huge chapter in my life when I was about ten. I, I have vivid memories of watching the footage of um, you know the, the, Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings announcing that the, uh, the start of the air campaign. My stepdad was in the UAE for that; it was the first time he had ever been deployed. Deployments were not on. Were not. Uh, at least for the Air Force, they were not terribly usual. They're not a usual occurrence like they are now. It was unusual for him to go for... I think he was gone for maybe eight months, and that was a remarkably stunning event to have happen. And then, of course, it's tethered to a piece of of history. Um, But so my formation was just predominantly military. But at the same time, it was a little bit more... I think I, i maybe give myself too much credit, but it was somewhat retrospective or at least introspective. I understood that it was... There was flaws in it. Um, I mean, I was a big student of Vietnam when I was a teenager. I got really attracted to the war. I still do read a lot about it now. I'm rereading, you know, Neil Sheehan's book on on John Paul Van and Halberson's books. And I've always been attracted to that conflict than I was as a kid. More for the stories of it, the the, the typical Rifleman story. Um and then that kind of grew from there into the World War II and Civil War. So when I went into the I went into the Marine Corps in, two, in uh, 1998 as an infantry rifleman, and uh, spent four years in the infantry. I, I did two years as a, a rifleman with a infantry company. and Went to the Mediterranean pre 9/11. You know, uh, typical kind of six month cruise in the Mediterranean with the with the Navy, and then I uh, went to this unit and. And DC that was responsible for responding to chemical and biological weapons attacks. So, if you remember, right after nine eleven, there was the anthrax attack in in, in DC. Well, if you saw a picture of a guy in a you know gray suit and rubber boots walking in with a shopping cart and a weird vacuum, that was me and my my friends. We went in those buildings and took air samples and carpet dust samples from the carpets and had that analyzed and dealt with that. And then from there, I went to uh, I became a combat correspondent, which I guess in shorthand is basically like Joker from Full Metal Jacket. And um, I went back. I went down to North Carolina and I spent uh, seven months in, I ran their, I was a military editor of their newspaper for a while. And then I uh, went to uh, the Horn of Africa for six months as a basically their public affairs officer, or public affairs chief. And then I went from there, I came back to the States briefly, and then I went to Iraq with the... Uh, a, a rifle battalion and was involved in some conventional and non-conventional conf- operations in the uh, Al-Ambar province way up near the Syrian border. And this is in 2005 and six, about a year after the Battle of Fallujah. Um, and I've been around the military even since to some respect, though I kind of pulled away from it considerably after I left the Marine Corps. I was still working as a contractor, sort of as a day job, while I was moonlighting as the writer of varying events and... and And uh, so I've been kind of in in close orbit of it. I keep trying to – it's almost like a godfather syndrome. I kind of try to get away from it, and it sort of sucks me back in um, as a huge – I think that's kind of a a, a common theme amongst most veterans. I tell most veterans, listen, when you get out, do anything else, anything else. And it's not because the military is inherently a bad place to work. It's so you can get some experience from just doing something that's antithetical to that lifestyle. Or just try something else so you get a little bit more of an education than what that offers. Um, So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. It's kind of a roundabout way of doing (laughs) that. For sure.
0: I I love any time we can talk about regular and irregular actions. That's all. there. That's always a good time when you can have those conversations. So what, what I would say is this, like I, I was actually, I was lucky enough to get an early edition of your, of your book volunteers, which I think is fantastic. And I can't wait for it to get out in the world, but for anybody who's listening to this interview, you'll notice also that Jared already threw in like some pop culture references to try and bring the thing full circle. And one of the things that I found really interesting about your book, which shouldn't shock me is how much your experience before you were in the military was based upon watching the movies, reading the comic books, sort of absorbing that sort of culture. And we had, um, we had the cartoonist, um, uh, Nate Powell on who was talking about the, the rise of fascism through popular culture and, uh, through the forever wars and all this stuff. And you write in the book about how you had this idea about the military and what it was. And then of course you get ready to go to Iraq and you know that it's, a wrong headed war you 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 write at one point, you say that this was a, a failure of diplomacy, a failure of of foreign policy right and And you go anyway, can you talk a little bit about the narratives of service and the military and sort of the reality of it and what that what that is for somebody who goes from one to the other and what that does for a veteran or somebody who serves?
1: well, I guess to get to what I was kind of iterating in the book in a lot of ways was there's a certain, the military offers a certain adventure that the average life, the average American life in general terms does not offer. Um, and so when you're, when I was kind of raised with the Indiana Jones and the Star Treks and the, and the Star Wars and all those war films, um, it was like I was looking around at my outside world. I even talk about it with the air force. I was, you know, saying eventually got to a place where the air force began to seem sedate. Even with all of its, you know, the things that it does, which are, you know, can be pretty incredible. Um, even that began to seem stale or just a little pedestrian. Um, but when you go into in a place like that, one of the things that separates it dramatically from the average, or from the just the American experience, American civilian experience, is the connection you have with other people and the range of emotions you experience when in stressful situations. You know, um, the, usually the, the the best bonds are formed under duress. You know, when you have two people who are, you know, being exposed to harsh conditions, either through either violent conditions or just environmental, they, that those bonds are a lot stronger than, than just two friends hanging out and having a regular regular time together. Um, you know, I think you and I probably shared a little bit of that with Cleveland. We were sitting and we were surrounded by, yeah. you know, batshit craziness. And, you know, I, I remember leaving. When I left, I was like, man, that guy, me and that guy, you know, we, I felt something It was there was a little bit more of a bond there than if if I was just hanging out with you at the bar because we had gone through and experienced that sort of thing. Um, and so when you get out of the military, one thing I do notice, especially my first two years, especially was a little bit tough for this. Was that goes away, it ceases to exist, not entirely. You have your veteran friends that you keep up with, and 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 you have those sort of connections, but they're all in they're all in retrospect. You know, they're very much, uh, they're all sort of built on a certain nostalgia for that period when you were doing that thing. And so, and and there's no growth from that. It's sort of, in fact, it it kind of locks you a little bit. It sort of changes you to the radiator, you know? Um, and as far as the, as far as my involvement in Iraq, it, what was interesting to me, and I think I say this about Vietnam too, is I knew Vietnam was mindless. It was just a mindless war to go to. Iraq was very similar you know um and yet i was i just kind of naturally accepted that because i had one no agency to change it and two that was the that was you know to quote to quote many of veterans of vietnam that you know don't this is the only war i've got don't knock it you know like this <laughs> yeah. is the this is the war that i'm fighting and this is the war that my country's fighting i have no way of adjusting that i think it's wrong on a geopolitical and even military uh, larger military for a larger military picture but my own involvement is not going to change because of that. Um, there's no there's no amount of protesting that I was going to be able to do to alter its course. So the best thing to do is just do the best I can in the very small bubble that I have agency in, and then come out of it and try to have some wisdom, maybe maybe learn a little bit extra in the process of going through that experience.
2: You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I don't have any military in my family, so my impressions are basically from books and movies. Uh, which are most interesting when they deal with that—that that the, the grappling of you know whether or not you believe in what you're doing and you still have to do it anyway. Uh, and I and is, is it am I wrong in saying or am I right in saying that like it seems like the Marines specifically are the ones who are supposed to question authority and you know and make sure that everything is done, is right. I feel like they're the ones who are more permitted to be maybe is insubordinate maybe not the right word but they they have more freedom to to be that
1: way. Oh no, no it's actually the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> it is oh sure. yeah yeah it's actually the opposite they're they're uh, now what i would say is that they they do have a tendency to be very uh fire and brimstone when it comes to basic virtues now that doesn't mean that it always applies downstream to the average lance corporal though i think it does tend to an uh, 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 average um you know i think that they're very the 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 Mike, I had some experiences dealing with the officer corps or the senior officer corps and general officer corps. And one, you know, they they are very big in the structures. The structures of the military and its relationship to the civilian government is really important. Um, And that's not just the Marine Corps. I think the military at large is that way. I mean, you saw that with the sort of clumsy, I mean, Mark Milley clumsily sort of, reluctantly putting himself in a position to be involved in that that mindless I keep using the word mindless because I, I my adjectives are terrible right now but um that sort of um that, the, the thing with the bible the and Trump op, outside yeah. the church yeah the photo op you know and then you know and I'll even go and I, and I don't I don't know how tr- how how true this statement would be but I would even I would even make a, a loose posit that some of the lack of of commitment from the National Guard on January 6th was to avoid the perception of being committed to a political action, either in response to, against it or for it. Um, And so they just sort of set it on their hands. Um, The military is remarkably, almost sometimes to a fault maybe, it it tries to stay apolitical. I mean, the Hatch Act is sort of, sort of forces their hand there in in a lot of ways. Um, So like, I mean, I've had had a lot of discussions about uh, Jim Mattis. You know the the late the Secretary of Defense who who resigned, um, and I, I've had a lot of friends who say, "Why didn't he speak out after the fact?" I mean, he had all this opportunity to go and you know he was in the room. He could have him him well not just him him and H R McMaster's and John Kelly. They've all could have came out and you know beat on Trump with their shoes, and they would you know probably we would have been right. But the structures and the traditions of the military kind of prevents them from doing it. Almost at fault, almost to a fault. Um, so in terms of like looking at a problem – now as far as the Iraq war, the military isn't going to – the Marine Corps isn't in a position to look at the foreign policy and effect change in it. They're going to get a directive from the – they're going to get a directive from top that says, all right, listen, I need you to commit two marine divisions and I need you to sack Baghdad. And you know, and I need you to plan for post occupational, or not, or in this case, not plan for post occupation, and not, you know, post occupational efforts. And, uh, and so that's what they did. They said, okay, well, I'm going to bring over the first Marine Division and the bits of the second, and we're going to go and we're going to go up Mesopotamia. And they did it. As far as conventional warfare goes, they did it in, in exemplary style. Now. Everything that came after that was a disaster, and there, there are, um, there are articles of pop culture that that sort of uh, point to that. If you ever seen Generation Kill, the the adaptation of Evan Wright's reporting um, from the First Reconnaissance Battalion, he does a very good job of showing the Marines' attitudes, including junior officers, where they were effectively saying. We have no rules of engagement here. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? And are there strictures coming down from high that can guide our decision making? Because right now we're losing this in the long run. Um, so there, there, there's a certain not quite dogmatic, but there is definitely a compartmentalizing of of, of dissent, if you will.
0: So I'm I'm really glad that you you phrased it like that at the end because there there's something I I feel in all of this that that has to be said, which is. Not only was the Iraq war like mindless, but it was part of like a larger geopolitical strategy, right? It was about Mm -hmm. American hegemony. It was trying to secure resources and the idea of revenge, whether real or imagined or some sort of quixotic type of thing. A thing – and hearing you talk about this I think is one of the reasons why we're having this conversation with you is because you looked at the contradictions and were like, could I learn something from this? I think a lot of people who go through this, when they go through a war that they necessarily come to become disillusioned with, like let's say a Timothy McVeigh. Who leaves the Persian Gulf, right? And mm-hmm. believes that he went to war for no reason. He feels completely isolated and he finds comfort with other veterans, paramilitary groups, extremists. We have now had war wars that have gone on. God knows how long you could even say whether or not they're over or not. They continue. Uh, we have veterans who haven't been taken care of. Uh, they haven't been given their, uh, necessarily their pay, their health coverage, all of this. Now we've reached this point where the American experiment is in real trouble in a lot of different ways. We have a lot of disillusioned veterans who are here at home. A lot of them obviously are joining these extremist groups. We had a ton of veterans involved with paramilitary groups storming the Capitol. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you actually watch the video and I assume you could tell more than I could, uh, they were organized trained, they were using nonverbal communication, there was a lot going on in that operation can you talk about the consequences of having wars like this for so long and having veterans who aren't necessarily taken care of or valued and what that eventually leads to
1: well you know it's funny because I think that America uh, over any country in probably modern history America has been given examples of how not to, if you excuse my language how not to fuck this up Yep. Like, the, the Vietnam War, they get signals from the, the Ho Chi Minh appealing to Truman and the French involvement in, in Tonkin, right? Persian Gulf War is a signal to the American uh, policymakers not to invade Iraq later. And they, they do exactly the opposite. Um, so th- that's one aspect of it. Uh, Timothy McVeigh. It's funny because I, I you know, I've been reading up on him a little bit, and I always thought that it was ironic that he had he had such a he had such a disenfranchised view of that conflict because the the even the people that were in it, generally speaking, understood their mission, they understood their objectives, and they accomplished them, and they came home victorious. So it's so it's almost like I almost sort of reduce his. His motivations to him singularly or just that group of people, very, very small group of very cynical and uh, with a very dystopian outlook of the country and the country's involvement yeah. overseas. Now, we can look at the, the, the forever war and we can look at Vietnam as analogies to each other, right? or, or you can use an, Vietnam as an analogy, right? Like, after Vietnam, Vietnam lasts, you know, the gr- major ground combat operations last eight years. Um, and they come home from that and they have this again, this sort of stab in the back feeling. They start to mobilize into these John Birch Society type organizations, though John Birch predates it, obviously. But that you know, they start organizing into these paramilitary groups. They have this very cynical attitude about the military, or about excuse me, about the country. Um, they, they they kind of feel that the culture is weakened. I'm sure you've you know, it's got a weak culture and and that sort of thing. And I'm sure you hear a lot of this. You, you see a lot of similarities to. Uh, Weimar, uh, uh, Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic yeah. yeah, you see, you hear the same kind of language is coming out of those organizations, and and so, but I think that I think that a lot of the disenfranchisement, or a lot of the the attitudes of veterans who find themselves aligned with far right extremist groups, some has something to do with that lack of dis, or that or that that disconnection they feel when they come home and they leave the military. Is there are around a group of people that are like-minded, um, the military does have a tendency to sort of value strength above nuance. And so, the, and that is, that is kind of a, a, uh, conservative mentality. I mean, I think it's like, I think it's, uh, the, the military is predominantly conservative and it's, I think it's conservative for that reason. It has a tendency to view strength as a virtue rather than intellect. Um, that could probably could probably go right back into some Hofstadter there and, and, and find some answer, reasons for that. And But I do think that modern, uh, the, the, the guys who are finding themselves allied to the right wing are looking at uh, uh, the extreme right are looking at the disenfranchisement they're feeling coming home, finding the VA systems not being taken care of, finding themselves alienated by the, the, the majority of the population who is largely forgotten about their conflicts or yep. as just sort of sort of shoveled them under the rug a little bit because they're a little bit too hard to talk about. Yeah. And those kinds of groups have a tendency to recruit, recruit based on those principles a little bit, I think. And it just, it's a natural fit. Now, also, I think that there's a, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is the FBI starting to look at these guys as terrorist organizations, which is fantastic. Um, and I, I wonder if it took so long because it's there's there's a natural connection to there's always been a natural connection to the right wing and police forces. You know, it's, just, it's it's well documented, and and I do kind of wonder if it's hard for those guys to see themselves as somebody who is engaging in terrorist behavior, yeah. and if it's like it's hard to go hard to leave the military where you're basically paraded around in absence of reason sometimes. As this sort of heroic individual in, in, in the national landscape, just suddenly being verd- converted or being viewed as a terrorist. In fact, it's going to dig their heels in a little bit more and they're going to say, No, I'm not at all. I believe in the Constitution and all that. And I think that it's being corrupted, even though it's patently not. Um, I hope that answers your question, but I think that uh, that's a lot of it. I think a lot of it comes from the disenfranchisement that veterans feel, and that's what shoves them in that direction. Um, it's a sense of loss. And if you can go, I mean, I mean, Hunter Thompson wrote about this in Hell's Angels. He, the guys who were coming back from World War II were banded together to form motorcycle groups because they had no, they had no way of reconnecting with a population that just didn't experience what they experienced overseas. And coming
0: and think, back to normal.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I think that there's a little bit of that going on with like the Three Percenters or, or, or even Proud Boys. You know, I think there's a, there's a certain camaraderie that exists there that they can't find anywhere else.
2: You, you know, I can't help but think there's a parallel between that and, like, people getting out of prison. Not to say that prison is like the military, but certainly there's a similarity, I think, of adjusting it's back to – It's an alternate to,
0: reality. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, it,
2: and it sort of, you know, it begets maybe more crime because they kind of gravitate again towards people they met in prison. All those things, uh, you know, kind of there is a parallel. I, I, my, my, at first uh, at first glance, from in my mind, I was going to say that Vietnam veterans who were treated so poorly coming back didn't – Form These kind of uh, paramilitary groups that are so threatening in places like Michigan. But I think what you were just saying was that there is a direct connection between that and what we see now. So is that that's one to explore that for another couple sentences is that that really is true where that that was happening where it was uh, with those kind of groups in the 70s, and I guess maybe into the 80s, be considered the same kind of radical, you know, terrorists that we would consider them now?
1: Absolutely. I think there is a direct lineage to those things. I think the core formation of the the the, the, the groups that existed, the, mission, the, the militia groups that existed in the late 70s and 80s it's um, is the nucleus of what is there now. I mean, because it, it doesn't diminish. In fact, it only grows even prior to 9-11, right? I mean, Timothy McVeigh, Ru, the, the Ruby Ridge, and uh, I'm not going to say Waco because that was more religious-based. But, um, but they,
0: loved, they loved having Waco as like a second example. They right, right.
1: It in, yeah. Though I doubt David Koresh would even remotely consider themselves tethered to that. You yeah. know, um, I don't think that that's that would be a fair assessment. But you're right; they would use those two in conjunction with each other to motivate their actions. I mean, that's how Timothy McVeigh blows up the building in Oklahoma City is based on those two events. And but that core, yeah, that core predates the '90s definitely. So the only other place it could have come from is is Vietnam.
0: I, I I think it's also interesting too. I mean. What we're currently watching, I mean, every major military campaign has always had an equal and opposite reaction when the people come home, particularly if there's not some sort of um, achieved goal. Do you know what I mean? Like if there's some sort mm-hmm. of frustration or some sort of a political tumult. I mean, because in order and, and a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is we talk about the difference between actual reality and actual politics and like the the narrative You know, the sort of story that you tell people to mobilize them. The story for Afghanistan and and especially Iraq was this neoconservative Straussian idea, right? Mm. We have a crusade and people love crusades. It doesn't matter if they're real or not. But the problem is the crusade and the narrative of the crusade only lasts so long. And eventually it has to be replaced by something. And eventually people start wondering what in the hell are we doing, you know, in Jerusalem right now? Why why are Mm. we here? And then you got to come back to Europe. You got to come back to the United States. And I think, um, I think when, when that narrative sort of gives way, I, think that there is a frustration about people who want to believe the narrative, the idea of American exceptionalism, the mm-hmm. idea that America is chosen, all of that. And I think it all kind of gets like tied up in a knot. I, I, I don't know. Does that ring true?
1: I think that that's interesting. I don't know. That's, it's, it's a good question. I kind of wonder, I do think that there's an attitude about the military, especially when it's, when it's late, when it's the average sort of conservative layperson when it comes to the military, that what the military does is inherently right by virtue of the fact that it's doing it. Right. So, like, and I've always had struggles with that, even when I was in the military, and I've gotten into plenty of arguments over this with other Marines. Like, just because we're that's what I was
0: going to ask. Is that something that you felt, or that more people felt, or were there discussions about that?
1: There were not many discussions about it. Usually, you, you tend it wasn't a lot of a lot of. I won't say that there were there was our thinking about it was very local. You know, yeah, in we uh, you know especially in the enlisted side of things we weren't really considering the things we had no control over it was more just like well i've got this i got these few blocks to patrol can i you know what what can i do to be a be a force of good in this generally speaking and the, most of the marines i met and most marines i ever worked with were were trying to be a force of good in a specific place. Um, but what's interesting is that I think that this has probably maybe been one of the first times I've ever seen in the conservative circles where they were just as much about leaving a conflict as liberals were. Like, nobody wants to be in Afghanistan yeah. anymore. Yeah. Nobody wants to be in Iraq. Nobody wants to be in Syria. And it's funny how it, it's become this sort of ping pong that gets batted back and forth between the both, wings of the both wings of our government, right? It's, you know, this guy made a promise to get us out of Afghanistan, and he's not doing it. And then— then, then the then the ball bounces back to the other to the victor of that election, and well, that guy didn't get us out of Afghanistan, though he promised to do it. And meanwhile, the wars are continuing abated, unabated. Now, the troop levels are incredibly low comparatively, but that doesn't mean that the 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 reasons for you know the the the, the fact that we're still there and we're still involved in some military capacity is that those are still there; those haven't gone away, um, and nobody seems to know how to do it. You know, um, and and there's a, there's a there's a kind of a sort of a Gordian knot in a lot of ways. If you pull the guys out of there entirely, there's a certain there are political ramifications to that because we've been there for so long and yeah. because we've we've screwed the place up so bad. ISIS is an example of that to a certain degree. I was a believer getting getting out of Iraq, and I still kind of am, but I also understand that doing so would probably c- concede Iraq to uh, Iran at least at least from a at least from a, on, a, on, a, on a subterranean level. You know, because based on the Sh- Sunni-Shia divides. Um, but yeah, so I, 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 there's a kind of, so, but as far as like the veterans are concerned, I don't think that there's a lot of animosity, at least from what I've read, a lot of animosity over the fact that the wars are technically lost in terms of, or be, as being used as a weapon yeah. you know, against against something, against uh, ideology.
0: We can let you go back. But- we gotta let you go, but I have to ask you something. Which is, among like the people you served with and the people you know, is QAnon a thing? Are you are you watching the people that you've known and you've served with like fall under QAnon, or is this something that it feels like it's outside of?
1: Thankfully, no. I I think that the the people that my my veteran friends are are, are stunningly in opposition to that. I you know I got a a few track groups that I'm in, and I keep a loose tie on with some others and. They think a lot of it's nuts. They're yeah. just patent, patent nuts. And, and my, <laughs> a, few, a few of my veteran friends are, are very much like, you know, they're, they're, on the, they're on the side of the government here. They're very much like you don't get to walk into the Capitol building and start demanding heads because you lost an election. And, you know, so I, I even have a couple of guys who are friends of mine who are in the Army who are like, you know, I would be willing to, to, to be in defense of that violently. You know, I don't think that that's right to do, and I would defend, uh, I would defend our, I would defend the institutions before I would defend those people.
2: You, you know, really quickly, I'm curious. You know, around 9/11 is when we noticed, uh, and then beyond that, where quotas weren't necessarily being met by the military as for recruiting, and they had to maybe perhaps lower the standards. Is what I, I'd read about. And remember, you when know, I was teaching in high school, and they would bring these uh, big buses in to recruit people, which you don't normally see unless there's moments where they need more, you know, soldiers. So I'm curious, you kind of bridged that gap between like around 98 and then past 2001 in a way that did you see there was, and I wonder if that could connect a cue as well, because perhaps the younger, you know, people in the military now are more susceptible to that. But the, the point, the question I was asking was, did you experience firsthand any kind of notion of a lessening of the standards of who would get into the military and how that might have affected how everything was processed after that?
1: Not really. No, I never saw anything like that. And I do know that the Marine Corps never really had too much trouble keeping keeping an enlistment quota. Granted, their quota was always lower. Okay, <laughs> they don't need as many people. Um, I know the Army may have had some struggles there. I don't think it ever got to the level of Vietnam where you had you know the Army basically recruiting you know people very low on the mental spectrum and making some really ugly decisions there. Um, I don't think it ever got to that point. I think, I I never saw anything like that in the field, certainly. Everybody that I was there with was either, was was pretty good at what they did.
0: Awesome. And we've been talking with Jared W. Alexander, who is a writer with works in Esquire, Rolling Stone, Nation, Narratively, and Elsewhere, holds an MFA in Literary Reportage from New York University's Arthur L. Carter School of Journalism. He's the author of the upcoming memoir, Volunteers Growing Up in the Forever War, which is out in November. It is fantastic. Uh, Where can the good people find you, Jared?
1: Uh, Twitter mainly, I think Jared underscore Alexander. The first name is spelled J E R A D.
0: Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much,
1: man. All right. Take care. Thanks.
0: All right, everybody. That was Jared W. Alexander, J E R A D, if you want to find him out there and about. Great writer, uh, great thinker. I'm really glad he was able to join the podcast.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, get, I get that from when you talk to people like that, the, the solution to helping veterans tends to be mostly yep. the mental side, really to help them to, you know, adjust. it's not, I mean, there might be something physically wrong too, but it seems like that is a thing, which is also an uh, anathema that people don't want to deal with psychiatrists and yep. feelings and these things, yep. especially in that environment, which is what precisely would help, uh, and you know, it's it's. I think you know a thing or two about about masculinity and how it's toxic.
0: Well, and by the way, I just want to point out this is something we talk about all the time. Like, is it hard to solve problems? Absolutely, it's hard to solve problems. But if you don't solve that problem, it turns into other problems inevitably, and that's the problem with America is we have so many problems that we just didn't deal with, and now they've turned into a big giant toxic poisonous
2: knot. Yeah, I mean by the way we mentioned that you know uh, we, there's so many examples of history teaching us what not to do yep. and, you know Russia taught us not to go into Afghanistan we don't even need oh. to have our own history to teach us these things we can look at everybody else so um, yeah I mean and, and by the way why because we were on the other side against we were with the Afghanistans oh. we were with Osama bin Laden you know and then we screwed that relationship up and then you know next thing we know we have 9/11. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's frightening how the foreign policy in America continues to, uh, to, uh, f- fail, I suppose. And,
0: and, and by the way, like, it's not just enough to say that like Iraq was like a wrong war to fight. We have to talk about the fact that we had an entire generation of people involved in these wars. We spent trillions of dollars. We, we had all of this stuff happen that doesn't just occur in a vacuum. Right. You don't just go into one country after another and put, you know, thousands of, of, of young men and women in danger. And then suddenly you just wake up and you're like, oh, everything's fine. That wasn't even a big deal. It changes everything.
2: Oh, by the way, the 2008 crash, uh, you know, is deeply affected because we were stuck in those wars and, and had absolutely. been stuck in those wars for five years previous. So the absolutely. And then that's when, you know, you could argue that someone like Osama bin Laden won. He, he embroiled us into two wars in trillions and trillions of dollars and, and now, uh, you know, got everybody angry at each other in a civil unrest. It, it, it's, a, it's a mess that it's, we're still not recovered from.
0: No, it's going to take a long time and a lot of uh, hard looks in the mirror, but we are happy that you are involved in listening to this show. It means a lot to us. We're trying to look in the mirror. We're trying to understand this. We're trying to deal with actual larger problems so we can start to untangle that knot. Um, a reminder to everybody, we do have an additional bonus show on Fridays. All you have to do to access that is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash podcast. You'll get that, all kinds of other stuff. Uh, you will get a first glimpse at our audio.com documentary, uh, A Crisis of Confidence, uh, that is getting ready to come out. So all you have to do is go over to patreon.com slash muckrakepodcast. In the meantime, you can find Nick over at Can You Hear Me SMH. You can find me at J.Y. Sexton. Until then, everybody, stay safe.